Hello and welcome back to Franklin Covey's C-Suite Conversation with Scott Miller. That's me, honored to serve as your ongoing host in this new series where we have interesting and penetratingly insightful conversation with members of the C-Suite. Today, our guest is Tony Cupiano. He is the CEO of Marriott International, a 27-year member of the Marriott family and team. Tony, thanks for joining us today. Great to be here. Thanks for having me, Scott. So, Tony, you are obviously young enough not to have had a career before 27 years, but would you take us through a little bit of your background, education, perhaps what was your first job out of college? I'm guessing it was Marriott, given how youthful you look, but talk a bit, a bit about your own career journey. Sure, I, I'm happy to. I, I was lucky enough to attend uh, the Cornell School of Hotel Administration in Ithaca, New York, and actually started my professional career in Boston, Massachusetts, working for Laventhal and Horwath, who at the time was the premier hospitality real estate consulting firm. After four years in Ithaca and two years in Boston, uh, I felt the call of the Pacific. I moved to the West Coast and worked for Kenneth Leventhal and Company prior to uh, their acquisition by Ernst & Young, uh, again in hospitality consulting, and then came back to the East Coast and joined Marriott in February of 95. And you've been there for 27 years Tell us, Tony, what's been your, what has your career been like in the Marriott organization? People are always looking for what is the path to the C-suite? What is the path to become a CEO? Deconstruct a bit for us your nearly three decades inside of Marriott. I started in our feasibility and market planning group, which is a, a group of analysts that analyze prospective new hotel projects. And so I was working all over the country uh, very early in my tenure, about two months into my, my time here. Uh, like many young associates, I was working very hard trying to establish my reputation here. And I was in my cubicle at about 10 o'clock at night. And my predecessor running development was a gentleman named Jim Sullivan. And he came walking down the hallway about 10 o'clock at night, uh, found me in my cube, asked me what I was working on and said, I've got an idea about acquiring the Ritz-Carlton Hotel Company. So very early in my career, I had the privilege to work closely with Jim on that acquisition. Uh, two years later, uh, Arnie Sorensen, my predecessor as CEO, was running mergers and acquisitions. He came down the hallway again, probably at about 10 o'clock at night, said, I've got an idea to acquire Renaissance hotels. I had the privilege to work with Arnie on that billion dollar acquisition. And when we completed that project, the company realized we've meaningfully expanded our brand portfolio we should add to the number of transactors we have. And so I moved from feasibility into development, moved back to the West Coast to Newport Beach, and it ultimately led the company's development efforts in the Western US and Canada until I was promoted to run North American development, at which point I came back here to Washington about 16 years ago. It's really an amazing journey. In fact, serendipitously, the episode we released this week was with Hort Schultze, of course, oh. the co-founder of the Ritz-Carlton. He was a total class. Act. It was like a master class in leadership, right? Listening to Hort's and his, uh, you know, nearly 70 years. Extraordinary leader and, and really an iconic leader in luxury. And, and one of the things I remember most distinctly about that acquisition in 95, Horst was running Ritz-Carlton. And Bill Marriott, who is, is, is such an iconic and thoughtful leader, uh, there were folks in the organization that said, 
great, we can close the Buckhead Atlanta office of Ritz-Carlton, think of all the savings we can achieve. And Bill Marriott was the one that said, we need to learn luxury from Ritz-Carlton. And so we kept the Buckhead office and horse team in place. And I think that really was a great launch point for our entry into, into true luxury with that Ritz-Carlton transaction. It's a great story for all of us, right? Because certainly hubris and ego follow us into the C-suite to what a great model Bill Marriott was there. Speaking of Bill, you are not the first non-Marriott CEO. You, of course, followed the late Arnie Sorensen, an icon in the industry who passed from a tragic bout with cancer about a year ago. Uh, what's it like to be the CEO of a company where the founders, the namesake are still alive, they're still involved, they're still very much hands-on, I'm sure, all of our listeners and uh, viewers probably have a sense for what a gentleman the Marriott leaders are and the, for those female members of the family involved in the firm also. Well, what's, what's the challenging part of being the CEO of a company that was a family-owned company, now, of course, broader international company? Mm -hmm. well, what's the prickly points of that? Well, I, I would, I'd probably quibble with your words. I wouldn't say it's a challenge. I, I think about my, my relationship with Bill Marriott and, and I don't use this word lightly. It's a privilege. Uh, I talk to him a couple days a week. He's still deeply engaged in the business. Uh, his counsel, his steady hand, particularly in the face of a crisis like the pandemic, uh, is nothing short of miraculous. He is thoughtful. He is collaborative. Uh, he understands the business deeply and he's got this, this, depth of institutional knowledge of navigating this organization through crisis. And, and that, that uh, perspective has been invaluable for me as I've onboarded into my new role. And I think broadly for the organization, um, someone that's lived through uh, global conflict, that's lived through the impact of the events of 9-11 on travel and tourism, that steered the company so capably through the Great Recession, and, and that that, that knowledge and that, that steadiness has just been a privilege uh, as I've taken on this role. Tony, speaking of the challenges that Marriott has faced and you as the CEO in this storm, you've had enormous opportunity to onboard and a mind-boggling number of people. I think I've had close to 50,000 or such mm -hmm. since the pandemic. How does a company, an organization like Marriott, keep your mission, your culture, the, the esprit de corps, if you will, of the Marriott family when you have such massive numbers of people that you're onboarding, what's unique to your culture, your processes, your leadership that helps to keep that culture in place? It's really the culture itself. And, and uh, I think throughout my 27 years, I, I have had deep affection and respect for the culture. It is real, it's tangible. I view it as a, a distinct competitive advantage. But cultures, you can't wake up Sunday night and say, I think I'll create a corporate culture tomorrow. The company will celebrate its 95th anniversary this year. And we've had nearly a century of living the, the company's core values. The words are important. The actions are infinitely more important. And I think particularly in times of crisis, our culture and the core values that underpin that culture have been the true north that have guided us. And I think you raised the, the, the point about the 50,000 new associates we've added just here in the U.S. over the last year. I think that culture has been one of the most attractive factors as we go out there and we compete for talent. 
And I think it's been the thing that has attracted so many of those new associates to this company is our commitment to that culture for decades and decades. Tony, let's pivot to some of the lessons learned from the pandemic. Obviously, Marriott is a giant in the hospitality industry, the gold standard by many people's uh, uh, judgment. What have you and the leaders of Marriott done to weatherproof your organization for the next global crisis? Because there will be one. We don't know what it will be, if it's a war, a pandemic, or Mm -hmm. some kind of natural disaster or an economic meltdown. I know you can't fully weatherproof any organization, but what are some of the lessons you've done and things you're doing differently to set Marriott up as as uh, strong as possible that other organizations could learn from? Perhaps small mom and pop companies. Are there anything, is there anything in particular that you'd say, this is what we're doing differently now that everybody can learn from? The good news I think is I'm not sure we've had to radically change the business. I think we've learned from the, the, the crisis about broadly the resilience of travel. It is remarkable. Um, I believe deeply in the in the future of travel that people love to travel and explore new places and immerse themselves in new cultures. And I think the pace of recovery we've seen has really underscored the, the resilience of travel and tourism. Uh, I think we've always been thoughtful stewards of the company's balance sheet. Uh, that stewardship was certainly tested over the last two years. I having been here for 27 years. Uh, I've seen lots of budgeting and and financial analysis. I can assure you at no point in my 27 years did we run a sensitivity that said, what happens if business drops by more than 90% overnight? But again, not only have we learned about the resilience of travel during the last couple of years, we've learned about the strength and the resilience of our business model. The recovery, the pace of recovery, while not certainly not complete, has been really encouraging and I think a strong validation of the the strength of that business model. And then third, I would say to you, uh, from the very early days of of the creation of this wonderful company, the company has been focused on our people, on putting our people first and the, the passion and the resilience and the, the adaptability of our associates around the world. Uh, has been nothing short of remarkable over the last two years. Tony, how has the pandemic changed you as a leader? As you look back at the last 24, almost exactly 24 months, at least here in the U.S., a little longer than that, perhaps outside the U.S., as you look back and reflect, what do you do differently? Like if someone were to watch tapes of you uh, as to how you behave and speak now versus what you did two years ago, you weren't the CEO two years ago, but... I got to think something has changed about you. Uh, Other than sleeping perhaps a bit less, I I would maybe say three areas. Uh, Number one, uh, I have always believed in the importance of transparent communication. That's never been more important than in the face of, of the most significant crisis our company and our industry has ever faced. I would say number two, the importance of listening. I, I worry sometimes that, that deliberate, engaged listening is a skill that is evaporating, not only in business, but in life generally. And the importance of really listening to our constituents, our associates, our customers, uh, and our owner community, uh, really listening to the challenges that they're facing and collaborating with them and trying to solve those challenges. And then maybe third, 
Uh, I'd like to think I've always been intellectually curious, but as we had to rethink our operating protocols, uh, the, the cleanliness protocols that we had in our hotels, ways to try to inspire confidence in our guests in the safety of travel, uh, the ability to be intellectually curious, to talk to doctors, to talk to, to uh, uh, cleanliness experts, and to really uh, synthesize all of this information that was flowing into the company. Being naturally curious, I think, informed how we tried to reshape our business as we started to shift from survival mode to recovery mode. Tony, let's unpack the first one of those. We hear this phrase, transparency and communication a lot, and it's both, you know, something real and it can sound a bit ethereal. Would you break that down? What does that look like? Maybe inside Marriott or just generally speaking, if you were teaching the C-suite on how to be more transparent in their communication, what does that look like and sound like? Uh, if I were trying to teach that, honestly, I think what I would do is simply go to the video and hit the play button for one of Arnie's early communications to our associates globally. He was in the midst of his uh, treatment for pancreatic cancer. Uh, he started his communication by saying, some folks in the, in the leadership team were hesitant to have me film a video because he had lost his hair at the time as a result of, of his treatment. And he was transparent, he was emotional, uh, he was honest, uh, he, but he was hopeful. And I think that video likely will be used in business schools for decades to come. Uh, it was a master class in transparent communication. And I think for the leadership team at Marriott, not only in the C-suite, but throughout the organization, it really gave us a guide on how to communicate transparently and the power of that transparent communication. In fact, I watched it and it went viral across the web, across social media, mm -hmm. every executive in any company that had right. some intellectual curiosity and empathy watched that video and then shared it with all of their leaders as well. I tell you, I encourage everybody who's watching and listening to this interview with Tony Worldwide, Google the Arnie Sorensen Marriott video because it is, like you said, a masterclass in transparency and leadership. Is. Yeah, it was And it was exactly the right message our teams needed. We had the, the company, the industry had never faced a crisis like this. And he did that at a time where there was still so much uncertainty about how the pandemic was going to evolve. This was before the work really had started on developing vaccines. Uh, there were questions about uh, whether the company would or could survive the impact of the pandemic. And, and that, that thoughtfulness and that transparency and that empathy uh, was exactly what our associates around the world craved. Tony, I'm so glad that you referenced that. I had forgotten about the Arnie Sorensen video and it was, it was all the things you said it was. Google that video, it will be worth your several minute watch. Tony, let's pivot to uh, diversity. If I'm not mistaken, I think that you and Marriott have established a, an objective to have global gender parity in all executive positions by 2025 and other similar objectives around other diversity measures to the extent I've gotten that accurate. Talk about how you're doing at that, why that's so important, and how perhaps Marriott might even end up being a model for the industry. So it, it's an area of the company that uh, it, it, I'm filled with pride about. However, uh, one of Bill Marriott's guiding principles is this notion that success is never final. Uh, 
And so I will share some statistics with you, but also share some, some focus areas that the company has that will demonstrate we believe our work is far from done. Uh, we enjoy one of the most diverse boards of directors in the Fortune 500. We recently celebrated the 20th anniversary of a board level committee focused singularly on diversity, equity, and inclusion. Uh, when I look at my C-suite, uh, more than half of my direct reports are diverse. And it's interesting, you mentioned this target we had set to achieve gender parity in the executive ranks by 2025. Uh, in my first couple months in my new role, one of the first decisions I made was that that was not aggressive enough. And so we now have that same target, but we've moved it up. We're, our objective is to achieve gender diversity in the executive ranks by 2023. It is critically important uh, set of objectives for the company. And each time I'm out talking to our associates, I realize we need to work harder. Uh, we are absolutely in a war for talent. And one of the things that is so clear to me about our next generation workforce, when they think about, and they have tremendous breadth of choice uh, when they think about who they want to work with, they want to look at the job they aspire to get someday and see someone that looks like them. I have a daughter who's in college today. I have the, the pleasure to talk with her and her classmates all the time. And that's how they're thinking about choosing their employer when they graduate. What job do I aspire to? And when I look at the folks sitting around that table, do they look like me? And so again, it's a great source of pride for the company, but we continue to have more work to do. Tony, let's assume for a moment that you were horrifyingly the star of uh, Undercover Boss and you are out on the television program and you're assigned to the, let's say, the Arlington Marriott just across the bridge where I've stayed many times right. and you're making a bed. And the head of housekeeping comes in and her or he is inspecting your bed. How close can you make the bed the Marriott way and clean the room the Marriott standard? Well, I have such deep admiration and respect for our housekeepers around the world. Uh, I can tell you with certainty, I wouldn't do half the job they do. Uh, I would give it the old college try, uh, but they are so passionate. Um, I, I would probably stand back and learn from them. I, I was in Los Angeles a few months ago and uh, I was touring one of our hotels. I met a housekeeper that's worked for us for decades who has guests that will only book a room at the hotel if her floor is available because they have a personal relationship with her. They love how caring she is. And uh, the, the work our housekeepers do is nothing short of remarkable. Well, I asked the question not because the CEO should be doing that job. Of course, you should not be doing that job, but we know how easy it is to be disconnected from the real work or the front line where the customer experience is created hundreds of thousands of times a day across your entire brand portfolio. How do you, as the CEO of a global brand, a Fortune 500 company, still stay connected to the heart of the company to where the real work gets done? There's a balance, right? I mean, your job is not to be on top of that, but your job yeah, to be although, is to be although again, aware. I'll defer to our culture. Um, the best part of my job is being in the field, in our hotels, with our associates. Uh, I just got back to Washington. I was on the road for 16 days. 
I stayed in six of our hotels. I met every one of our associates. I had meals in the employee caf associate cafeterias. I went to line up with the housekeepers and sang and danced with them in the morning. Um, the only way to understand our business is to spend as much time as you possibly can shaking hands, talking, understanding uh, what they love about their jobs, what we can do to make their jobs more rewarding, uh, talking to our guests, hearing their impressions and their effect, affection for our associates. It's about getting into the field and spending time with our people. It's very true. It's easy to stay ensconced in our corporate office and meet and strategize and pour over spreadsheets and lead and lag indicators and all that's important. And like you said, to be able to be in front of and with where the real work is done is, is uh, invaluable. Tony, our time is ending. I wanna ask you a final question. Let's get personal about your own leadership style. What's your biggest area of growth? What's your biggest blind spot? As you kind of bring yourself into the full of your career, obviously you have decades still ahead of you, what's the biggest area? If there was a critic of Tony to say, this is an area that Tony has uh, some growth in, what would it be? Well, I spent a significant portion of my career in the, the transactional side of our business. Uh, I have worked in operations, but I am not as deeply experienced on the operating side of our business uh, as many of my colleagues. And so I, I'm spending more and more time in the field, spending more and more time with our frontline associates, spending more and more time with our general managers and our business councils. And I think they would encourage me to do even more, to, to more deeply immerse myself in the operating side of our business. Remember, more than 90% of our global associates work on property. And I think the more time I can spend really understanding the opportunities and challenges that exist for every one of those associates, it'll make me that much better a leader for this wonderful company. Well said, take it one step further and I'll let you go. When you find yourself owing someone an apology, why is it? Maybe it's your spouse, your neighbor, your mother-in-law, it's Bill Marriott, it's an associate somewhere. When you find yourself owing an apology, what has happened? I've not listened as deliberately and completely as I should. Again, I talked about this in response to one of your earlier questions. We live in a short attention span world. We're checking our phones, we're thinking about the next meeting, we might even be thinking about how we're gonna answer the next question. The ability to clear our minds and be deliberate and focused and really engaged as listeners uh, unlocks tremendous opportunity for all of us. And so my guess is if I owed somebody an apology, it's because I gave them less than 100% of my attention. Tony, thank you for the vulnerability and transparency, both of which are in fact leadership competencies. Tony Capuano, CEO of Marriott International. Thanks for your time today. Scott, absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you for being such great partners to Marriott. Our pleasure. Uh, Marriott's been a longtime client and partner with Franklin Covey. We're honored to call you one of our clients as well. And we'll see you back here next week for a new conversation in the C-suite. <laughs>